Well, if you could open your Bibles to James 1, 19 through 27 as our text. James 1, 19 through 27. James writes, verse 19, chapter 1, Know this, my beloved brothers, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, laying aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in gentleness receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of, of the word and not a doer, he is like a, a man who looks at, at his natural face in a mirror. For once he looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. But one who looks at, intently at the perfect law, the, the law of freedom, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a, a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious while not bridling his tongue, but deceiving his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled, undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. One of the, the realities of preaching that God's word in a public context is, is people falling asleep during the sermon. Uh, the very first sermon I preached was about 20 years ago to my former church's college group. It, it was on Luke 7 about the prostitute that Jesus forgave. And the, and the sermon was, uh, it was about three hours long. You know, I, I basically read it for word for word. It was rambled. It was disorganized. And during the, uh, during the sermon, heads progressively started falling like a set of dominoes. And by the end of the sermon, I had single-handedly sucked the life out of the entire auditorium. And as I was leaving the room, I, I was kind of dejected. I, I saw a sister kind of getting up out of her seat, and lo and behold, she had tears in her eyes. And I was like pleasantly surprised, like, wow, okay, I, it wasn't a total failure. And I said to her, I said, I looked at her, I said, oh, hey, sister, like, wh why are there tears in your eyes? And, and she looked at me and said, oh, I just yawned. And I said, okay, cool. There isn't a Sunday where someone doesn't yawn or nod off or struggle to stay awake and, yes, fall into dreamland. I remember once, once on a Friday night, we had a gentleman sitting on the front row table, uh, and, and as soon as I started teaching, he just slammed his head down, and he, he slept for the entire hour. And listen, I, don't, I, don't, I understand. I don't mind it at all. Uh, there were many Sundays back in Los Angeles when I even struggled to stay awake uh, at the preaching of John MacArthur, uh, believe it or not. I understand it. You had a long week, and some of you, this is the first time where you finally get to, get to sit down and get a chance uh, to relax a little bit, and, and the kind of the, and the, and the, and the, and the, uh, the tiredness kind of overtakes you, and I have a bad day, and, and you sleep. Some of you may be sick or on medication, or sometimes it's really cold, and then you come in here, and the warmth of the sanctuary uh, puts you into sleep mode. The best of saints cannot off during a sermon or a, or a Bible study. I'm, I'm not worried about that. My greater concern, my bigger concern is, however, how you receive God's word on a regular basis. My bigger concern is for those of you who are awake, who are listening from beginning to end, who you take notes, but you never allow the word of God 
to impact and change and shape your life. In today's passage this morning, James addresses the business of receiving God's Word. How should you receive God's Word, the Word of Christ? What does it mean to receive the implanted Word which is able to save your souls? And so we're finishing up chapter 1 this morning, and and, and if you remember, chapter 1 is broken up into two big halves. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 18 uh, deals, it orbits around the theme of pursuing a wholehearted Christianity. Do you want to follow Jesus with all of your heart? Then make sure you handle trials in the right way because trials are one of the main instruments by which God uses to mature Christians. When trials come, consider it pure joy. Pray for wisdom. Don't let the trial of poverty and or wealth ruin you. Don't blame God for the temptations and lusts that come out from the, the flesh of your heart. And finally, make sure that in a trial, you never doubt the goodness of God. In other words, Don't let the the multiplication, the various kinds of trials, the the heaviness, the weightiness of trials ruin you. Instead, let them transform you into a wholehearted believer. And now in this second big half of chapter 1, verses 19 through the end of the chapter, verse 27, now James describes the marks, the characteristics, the qualities of a wholehearted Christian. He he describes uh, someone whose heart has been completely given over to the glory and lordship of Christ. This kind of person who success, the kind of person who successfully navigates trials is is primarily, as we'll see in this text, is primarily a, a doer of the word. The marks of a wholehearted Christian revolve around the primary character quality of being a doer, not just mere, not merely a hearer of the word. And so um, let's consider five marks of a wholehearted Christian this morning from our text. The first mark of a wholehearted Christian is one who is, is slow to anger. James says verse nine, in verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. God wants trials to bring the best out of us, but often they do the opposite. And what do they do? They bring out the worst. Most often, trials tempt us to get angry, and when we're angry, the most common expression of our anger is our speech. Uncontrolled anger invariably leads to uncontrolled speech. And I believe that James is beginning the second half of chapter 1 in the same way he began chapter 1. Chapter 1 began positively how to deal with trials, consider it all joy. Verse 19 now begins the second half of this chapter on trials, negatively speaking. Consider it all joy in trials, number one. And on the flip side, do not get angry in your trials. See, our anger and our angry words come out in the greatest of trials, and they come out in the very least of trials. These days, I don't know if you've seen those, those Karen video clips on the internet, if you've seen some video of, of some angry, disgruntled customer, she's either at McDonald's or at Starbucks, and the, and the ice cream machine doesn't work, or the coffee doesn't have enough cream, and suddenly, what? Karen explodes in a rage. This mini, miniature, little, eensy-bincy trial of not getting her McFlurry or getting too much cream in her coffee sends her in a a, a rage. And what does Karen do? She shoots off a barrage of curses and insults. I remember in college, I was 
working at a Little Caesars Pizza, and, a, and this poor guy, he couldn't get his precious pizza on time, and he just, he just let loose, and he was insulting everybody there, and he said, this is the why you work here, this is why you don't go to college, because you can't get my pizza on time. And James is telling us in verses 19 and 20s that in trials, Christians should never turn into Karens. He says in verse 19, my beloved brothers, everyone must be quick to hear. The constant spirit of a believer must be a, a listening and, and a teachable spirit. And, and James draws from some of the major themes of Proverbs in these two verse, verses. In the Proverbs, if you're familiar with it, that book, Solomon says over and over, control your words. A son, keep your spirit under control. My child, watch your tongue. A man without self-control is like a, 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 like a city without walls. But Solomon also says to his son over and over, he says, a child, listen, listen, listen to my words. Listen to my counsel. Receive my words. Accept this rebuke. Accept hard, hard stuff. In other words, Solomon says, what James says here, be quick. Be quick to listen. Be quick to hear. You see, a humble, teachable, listening spirit is the first half of the, the equation. And James gives the second half of the, of the formula when he says, in verse 19, we are to be quick to hear, but also we are to be slow to speak and, and slow to anger. Control your words and control your anger. Angry words and, and an angry heart, they go hand in hand. But, but angry words always begin with a heart of anger. And the kind of anger that James is talking about is, is unrighteous anger. There is a difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. And obviously, James is referring to the sinful, unrighteous kind. What is the difference between the two? Well, for starters, unrighteous anger is a lot more prevalent in us than righteous anger. Unrighteous anger is self-centered. Righteous anger is Godward and others-directed. Unrighteous anger is petty and superficial. Uh, righteous anger is discerning. Righteous anger knows what's really important and what's not. McFlurries, uh, uh, ruined drinks, that is, that is silly, it is unimportant. Uh, unrighteous anger lashes out in personal insults and profanity and uncontrolled volume. A righteous anger has the ability to use your words in a constructive way. You're in the, the heat of the moment. You're in the fire. You're in the trial. You've been insulted. You've been offended. But you can use your words to figure out and solve the problem. Unrighteous anger speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, the book of Proverbs says. Uh, righteous anger is slow to speak. Sinful anger lacks faith in God. Sinful anger wants to be in control of the world instead of resting in God's sovereignty. Sinful anger is afraid. It's scared. The sinfully angry person thinks thinks by lashing out they can regain control again. He or she can be in charge. They can rectify the situation and, and make it right again. Anger thinks by, by yelling at the manager you'll be able to get a table faster. If I get angry, this person will stop respecting me. The angry person has the illusion that he or she could make the world right again by getting angry and using angry words. Sinful anger is addictive. It, it, feel, it can feel good. When everyone has to walk on eggshells because of your anger, 
Whenever, whenever, uh, when everyone thinks twice about messing with you, when people fear you, anger can feel like a drug. But in the, but in the end, this drug will wreck your life. The drug of anger destroys relationships. An angry man is a, is always a lonely man. The internal chaos of the soul that anger brings with, that brings with it is self-crippling. Anger can often taste so good, but ultimately, friends, the feast is your own heart. One poet wrote wrote this, In the desert I saw a creature, naked, bestial, who, squatting upon the ground, held his heart in his hand and ate of it. I said, is it good, friend? It is bitter, bitter, he answered, but I like it because it is bitter and because it is my heart. Anger destroys you. Anger destroys you in the end. And in verse 20, James now explains why Christians should be slow to anger. In a trial, this is what you need to remember. The ultimate goal is to please God. He says, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Verse 20, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The most important priority in a trial is never to accomplish an objective. It is never to gain some sort of personal end or personal reward. It is never to end the suffering as soon as possible. The main purpose of a trial is to glorify God. It is to achieve the righteousness of God. It means, this, this, this phrase, the righteousness, righteousness of God, to, to live in, a, in accord with God's revealed will in Scripture. And anger never achieves this. Anger may get you a, a refund at Olive Garden. Anger may get your children to quiet down. Anger may get your spouse to leave you alone for a while. But it, what it never achieves is the righteousness of God. Human sinful anger never produces behavior that pleases him. Outbursts of sinful anger do not produce the type of righteousness that reflects the standards, the holy standards of Scripture. And so the first mark of a wholehearted Christian is one who is slow to anger. We move to the second mark, and found in verses 21 through 25, that is the one who responds rightly to God's word. The anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. It keeps, and James says in verse 21, it keeps you from responding rightly to God's word. Because when you're angry, what, do you, what, what normally can't you do? You can't think very clearly. You do foolish things when you're angry. And you do foolish things because you're not thinking. See, when you see those videos of Karen complaining in the coffee shop, you know, and she didn't get her... She didn't get her Big Mac, you know? And more than, more than appearing angry, we laugh because Karen looks so foolish. See, whenever we fail to think clearly, we do foolish things. And if receiving the word requires anything, it requires a sobriety of thought and rationality and teachability 
and humility. It requires concentration. And since anger doesn't allow for any of those things, James, before he commands us to receive the word, in verse 22, 21, he says we are to lay aside not just anger, but all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Any sort, all sorts of unrepentant sin keep us from receiving the word rightly. And that phrase, laying aside, literally connotes the idea of removing your clothes. My home, when my son, five-year-old, gets home from school, he's always just caked with dirt and mud, and we say, you need to lay aside, you need to take off those clothes and change. And metaphorically, the imagery is, is applied to the stripping off of your pre-Christian life. If clothes kind of reflect a part of your identity, then the command is to, to shed your old identity and sin in exchange for a new one in Christ. It, it is in the demand for a complete change, a, a total conversion. You find the same phrase in Romans 13, 12, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Uh, Ephesians 4, 22 uses the, the phrase in the same sense, lay aside in reference to your former conduct, the old man, which is being corrupted in, in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Lay aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in your heart and receive the only power that can transform you from the inside out. Purity is a fundamental prerequisite for receiving the word. See, if you let unrepent, unrepentant sin stay unrepentant, if you insist on clinging to your idols, if you let your eyes gorge on worldly entertainment, if there is no decided break with the lifestyle that was part of your old life in sin, your heart can be so, can be so full of those things that it pushes out the Word of God. See, if you stuff yourselves with candy between meals, you won't be hungry when the feast of Scripture is offered to you. You will feel no need for the Word, and therefore you will not give the Word a place in your heart. So the reception of the, of the, of the Word and holy living go hand in hand like peanut butter and jelly. They go hand in hand like a husband and wife in marriage. And so we, we lay aside all that remains of wickedness from our old life before Christ saved you, and then you can receive, verse 21, he says, in humility, or in gentleness, he says, receive the implanted word. The implanted word. What is the idea behind that, that, that term, implanted word? What does that mean? Well, James is likely thinking about Jesus' words in Matthew 13, about the parable of the sower and the good seed of the gospel. Jesus there tells a story about a farmer who planted seeds in four kinds of ground. The seed was a metaphor for the word of the kingdom or the word of the gospel. And, and the first seed landed near the road. It didn't quite make it to the soil of the farmland. And this represented the one who hears the gospel and, and doesn't understand it because immediately Satan prevents that understanding. The second soil was rocky. In the rocky kind of heart, the gospel is preached, and there is a, this immediacy of joy that comes with it. But soon as, as trials come into the person's life, because the, the soil is rocky, the, it means that there's this hard layer where the, the roots can't get under this hard, rocky soil, this kind of, this underground, that, 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 that the roots can't 
take place. And so they quickly fall away in the trials of life. And the third kind of soil was the thorny soil. And this is the, the heart that James is primarily addressing in his book. This is kind of the most common kind of heart. This is somebody who hears the word of Christ, but they quickly fall away because of the concerns, because of the lusts of the world, the desires of riches and fame, of comfort that chokes out the word of the gospel. And then there is the final soil, the fourth soil, this is the only kind of soil that bears true salvation. This person hears the gospel, receives it, and he or she bears a bounty, a, a spring harvest of gospel fruit. The Apostle Paul, he also likens the gospel to a seed planted in the heart in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, where he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So the, the genuine saint has the gospel permanently rooted in his heart. But how do I receive something that is already in my heart? How do I receive that? It's already in my heart. Well, the, the implanted word, the implanted word is, is not like your lungs. You'd be making a big mistake if you treated the implanted word like your lungs because your lungs were implanted in you when you were born. You don't go on receiving your lungs. They just sit there inside of you, and as you breathe, they work. You don't have to think about your lungs, or you don't have to consciously say, okay, I need to, I need to breathe or I'm going to die. No, you, you didn't receive your lungs. They are already there. They're rooted. They're firmly planted. But James says, receive the implanted word that is already in you, already firmly rooted. So the, the word that brought you life initially and now is there permanently, as James 1.18 says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now the word of the implanted gospel within you is feeding your faith in Christ. The, the implanted word of the gospel is fueling your love for Jesus Christ, but it's not like your lungs. Instead, it's more like the oxygen in your lungs. The, the oxygen inside of your lungs, within you, it gives you life, and in giving you life, it makes you breathe, and, and as, you, as you breathe, you receive more oxygen. You never say to yourself, hey, I, I already have enough oxygen in my lungs, and it's working really well inside of me, it's keeping me alive, so I don't need to receive any more oxygen from the outside. No, the implanted word of the gospel in my heart and the external word of Christ in Scripture work together so that, so that united we live by having the word of Christ already implanted in us, and we also live by receiving the word of Christ. And so the oxygen of the gospel already in our hearts works in us by making us want to receive the oxygen of the gospel in Scripture. John Piper says, says it this way, receiving the external word replenishes the power of the implanted word, and the implanted word creates the hunger to receive the external word. And this process of receiving the implanted word is a life and death kind of matter. Receiving the implanted word According to verse 21, at the end of verse 21, it is able to save your souls. And the salvation being referred to is 
Total salvation, full salvation in heaven when Christ returns. Paul says it this way in Romans 5, 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We're justified now, and then we receive our full and final salvation when Christ returns and judges the world. And the, the only kind of Christian that goes to heaven is the one where this dynamic of receiving the implanted word is present. Uh, believe, believers, we, we receive the implanted uh, uh, word in verse 21. And verse 21, this, this command to receive that implanted word, it is the main point of verses 21 through 25. It is the main idea of verses 21 through 25. Then in verses 22 through 25, uh, uh, James explains, he defines what it means to, to receive the word. How do we receive the word? James will tell us in verses 22 through 25. And even in these next verses, you will notice there is no Bible reading plan presented. That James is after bigger fish. James is hunting for bigger game. Uh, Alex Moitier says it this way. And he says, we might wonder why the, why the ever-practical James does not proceed to outline schemes of daily Bible reading or the like. For surely these are the ways in which we offer a willing ear to the voice of God. But he doesn't do that. Rather, he goes deeper. For frankly, there is little point to plans and times if we do not have an attentive spirit. It is possible to be unfailingly regular in Bible reading but to achieve no more than having moved the book, bookmark forward. The word is read, but not heard. And I might add, the word is not obeyed. Verse 22 is the best known verse of the letter of James. Verse 22 says, But become doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. James begins the admonition of verse 22 with the command to become to become, to be born, to be created. And, the, and the, the, the premier Greek lexicon of the New Testament, BDAG in short, defines the word become this way, to experience a change in nature and so indicate entry in, into a new condition. James is, is not just saying to do the word uh, here and there sometimes. He says something more than that. He says, become a doer of the word. Become that kind of person. Who, who automatically obeys what he or she hears. James is not opposed to listening to the word, but he's attacking the act of just merely listening. That's, that's all you do. He's against that idea. And so to make that point in verse, verses 23 and 24, James illustrates how, how God sees a person who is just a hearer of the word. He says in verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. Just imagine, sometimes we have lunch after our service. Sometimes we have spaghetti even. If you ever eat spaghetti, it's kind of messy. And let's say you see a brother or sister right next to you, across to you, and after they eat the spaghetti, there's a spaghetti stain right here. You say, hey, there's a spaghetti stain right here. It's kind of... And, and you kind of wipe it off and it doesn't come off. And so you have to go to the bathroom and you look, you go to the bathroom, you see yourself, you see the spaghetti stain and then you come out or that person comes out and you see the person, the stain is still there. And when you say, hey, <laughs> the stain is still on your face. 
and the, and the person goes to you, oh, I'm, I, I just forgot, I'm sorry. So he goes back in, comes out, the stain is still there. And you say, hey, the stain is still there. He says, oh, I'm so sorry. He goes in, and this happens three or four or five times. And let's say this happens every time you have lunch. He always has a stain on his face. You, you always tell him, hey, you got a stain on your face. Hello? And he repeats the process four or five times. He comes out, the stain is still on his face. What do you conclude? Number one, you conclude, what a strange individual. This man is bizarre. And God is the same way. He's describing this condition. This guy is strange. But more than that, you will conclude that the forgetting is intentional. It's intentional. The failure of the hearer is the forgetting. And it's clear here that the forgetting is willful. The forgetfulness is premeditated because that is the only way the deceived sinner can live with himself. Self-delusion and intentional forgetfulness is a safety mechanism. It assuages the, the guilty conscience. It is a tragedy when you're in that cycle of merely being a hearer of the word and not a Steward of the word. It is a great tragedy where you do, where you forget repeatedly the great danger of sin and then forget to claim the amazing grace of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon said, They see the pearl of great price and forget to buy it. James is not talking to liberal churches. Those people, they never see themselves in the mirror of God's word. Wrap your mind around this. He is warning people in conservative, faithful, Bible-teaching churches. This verse only applies to faithful Bible-teaching churches. And so we don't want to comfort ourselves by thinking, well, I'm part of a, a doctrinally sound church. No, James says this is the only kind of, this is the only place where this kind of stuff happens. We never want to comfort ourselves by thinking, oh, I, ooh, I had, ooh, I had this sort of emotion. Ooh, I felt, ooh, I felt so good. That, that sermon, ooh, it really just got me going. And then you immediately leave the sanctuary and the spaghetti stain is still on your face. Look what he says in verse 24. He leaves, he's gone away. He immediately forgot what kind of person he was. What kind of person are you? What kind of person are you? What kind of person am I? But we're the kind of people who we fall short every Sunday and we need the blood of, 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 of Jesus' forgiveness. We need the blood of a perfect Savior. We are the kind of people who never measure up to the Word, who need His Spirit and His grace for the weak to obey that word we failed to keep the week before. What kind of people are we? We're weak and we're dependent and we're desperate for His grace. And so therefore, we need to directly deposit His word deep within us. And as the week progresses, we're trusting, we're clinging, we're believing, we're hoping, we're praying for grace to obey. That's the kind of person you are. To leave and forget, and th then live in total self-sufficiency is to deceive yourself 
Because, brothers and sisters, you are not self-sufficient. That you are not independent. That you are not the kind of person who's, who thinks to himself, I don't need anybody. I don't need God. I don't need grace. I'm strong enough. You leave like that. James says, you're deluding, your, deluding yourselves. You're crazy. You have these stains all over your face. Now contrasting the here only in verses 23 and 24, James goes to verse 25 and he describes the doer. And he, and he abandons this, the simile of a man looking in a mirror. Rather than comparing the doer to one who looks in a mirror and remembers, James straightforwardly describes the doer in verse 25. This is the doer in verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. Verse 25, James describes the one who, who looks intently. The word conveys uh, somebody looking eagerly, somebody with this eager desire to look closely, it, it, literally to bend over, to see the object more clearly. Years ago, when my wife worked, when we didn't have kids, when we were rich, we took a trip to Paris. We went to the Louvre, and of course in the Louvre, if you know, there's the famous Mona Lisa there. You get to the Mona Lisa, and there's, there's a crowd, there's a big crowd. And there's, uh, there's cameras, and people are taking pictures. And everybody's what? We're all kind of, we're all trying to go more closely, to look more clearly. See, this word has the idea of sustained attention. You're pouring over God's design for living like, like, like you would the Mona Lisa, and you're trying to fulfill all of it in thought, in word, in deed. And what is this person looking at? Um, something a lot greater than some strange-looking woman. We're looking at the perfect law, verse 20, 25. The perfect law and the law of freedom. These are both synonym, synonyms for Scripture. So far, James has described Scripture as the word of truth in verse 18. He described Scripture as the implanted word in verse 21. And now in verse 25, two more synonyms. The, the perfect law and the law of freedom. The, the perfect law is another reference to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to, to fulfill. Jesus talked about a, this righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so Jesus says, this New Testament law, my person, my words, it, it is a higher law than the law of Moses. And uh, what Paul calls this law the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians. And so there's, there's the perfect law. And there, there's also, uh, James calls the word of God the law of freedom. The law of freedom. And he contrasts the law of the New Testament the, the, the new covenant law with the law of Moses. The law of Moses was a, was a law of bondage because it was not accompanied by a new heart and the Holy Spirit that would, that would give God's people the ability, the freedom to obey that law. The law of Moses written on those stone tablets, it only condemned. It was accompanied by dietary and ceremonial reg regulations that made life, frankly, unbearably hard 
when it came to worshiping God. Access to God was almost impossible at best once a year in a temple with a sacrifice through a plethora of priests and and, uh, all these conditions. And James, uh, if you remember, when James and in Acts 15, when he issued the decree to the Gentiles that they, they don't need to be circumcised anymore, they don't need to obey that the, the old ceremonial law of, of circumcision, this is what J- Peter said to him right before that decision. Peter says in Acts 15.10, Now therefore, why do you put God to the, de- to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers, nor we have been able to bear. The, the Old Testament law was a yoke. It was a, it were, they, were, they, were, they were chains that they couldn't bear this. But the law, the, the, the law of freedom, Christ's law for the church, came with the gospel that freed us from our sins. It came with a new heart and the Holy Spirit that gave us the freedom to obey Christ's word. James is saying that there is no excuse for a genuine believer not to be a doer of the word because Christians have the law of freedom. We have the freedom to obey his word. And then James says he abides by that perfect law and the law of freedom. The, the doer endures, he tarries, he remains faithful. You're so faithful. You're so enduring. You're so persevering to the end. You're so convinced of the Word's heavenly authority that that change takes place. And then James says that he's not a forget for a hearer, but he's a doer of the work. The doer of the Word works. That yes, Christianity is all of grace, but it also takes a lot of work. And the outcome is This man will be blessed in what he does. Notice the demonstrative pronoun. If you remember Jesus, he he gave in Luke, he he described two kinds of people. He described the Pharisee. It says the Pharisee uh, prayed every day. He prayed like this, Lord, thank you that I'm so righteous, that I'm so great. I I tithe every day. I I, I pray three times a day. I'm just this wonderful, uh, wonderful follower of you. And then he... And then Jesus describes the, the, the tax collector, and the tax collector, he's beating his breast. He says, oh God, oh, he, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then, and then Jesus, afterwards, he, he uses that demonstrative pronoun. He says, this man, this man went home justified. And James uses that same kind of language. And he says, the one who's the doer of the work Look at him. This man. This man will be blessed in what he does. The blessing is the crown of life referred to in verse 12. The the crown which consists of eternal life. Listen to me. The lifestyle of the doer of the word is the evidence that God has blessed the doer from before the foundations of the world. The doer's practical godliness is the evidence of his election. The doer's holiness is the proof of his redemption. The doer's abiding in the word is the documentation of his adoption. The doer's remembrance of the word as opposed to forgetting of the, of the here is the corroboration that he shall be blessed when Christ shall return and glorify his people. Well, we move to the last two verses of the text. 
And these, we find the, the last three marks of a wholehearted Christian. And they flow out of, of, of the second main mark of a wholehearted Christian, the one who does the word. And the way uh, verses 21 through 25 work, it, it, they work like this. It starts with receiving the implanted word, and then the verses continue with how you do that. You receive that implanted word by doing the word, by being a, do, a, by being a doer of the word. And now in verses 26 and 27, James suggests three tangible ways you can do the word. Three concrete examples of a doer, a doer of the word. It's not a comprehensive picture, but without these three, you do not, you do not, you are not a doer of the word. And he says in verse 26, a doer of the word bridles his tongue. He, he bridles his tongue. A bridle is what you do, what you would use to control a horse's mouth. And if you control the horse's mouth, you control the horse. I've been in a lot of. Uh, to theological debates. I've been in a lot of, uh, you know, apologetics and sharing the gospel, and and we're going back and forth, and it can get kind of, it can get uncomfortable and heated, and and uh, but I've never called anybody's religion worthless. Never said, you know what, your religion is worthless. I mean, that's strong language. And James does exactly that in verse twenty-six. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious while not bridling his tongue but deceiving his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. It doesn't matter what sort of outward showing you present to others on Sundays. I mean, it doesn't matter what you're wearing, your Sunday, your best. See, if your your speech at home before your family is characterized by gossip or slandering, or if you're always lying, if your speech is unkind, James says you're, you're, you're deceiving yourself. Your Christianity is worthless. You know, children, they know. Kids know. Kids know mom and dad. And you can be a pastor of a church. You can come up here and wear a suit. But if your words at home are, are, have no control, if they're unkind, if they're mean, if they're without mercy, without grace, see, all of this, all of this, this my ministry, my, 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 my seminary degree, James says, that is worthless. Worthless. James says there are two kinds of Christianity out in the world well, there's the worthless kind, and there is, verse 27, the pure and undefiled kind. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this. That, number one, number two, we, we visit orphans and widows in their affliction. A wholehearted believer visits orphans and widows in their, in their need. In the ancient world, because of the lack of money-making possi- possibilities and the lack of the absence of social welfare, the widows and orphans could not provide for, them, for themselves. And so James says that pure and undefiled religion must always be practically helpful. In the Old Testament, Israel was called to, to care for their fellow citizens of Israel who were helpless and in need. Exodus 22.22, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. The church, too, must uh, 
help the most helpless of our members. 1 Timothy 5.3, honor widows who are widows indeed. And then it lists the details and requirements of how to help widows in the church. James later in chapter 2, 14 through 16, go there real quickly, fast forward. James says in the context of what makes up saving faith, he writes in 14, verse 14, what use is, what use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If her brother or sister is without clothing and, and in need of daily uh, food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, right? Uh, and, you, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their, for their body. What use is that? What a worthless religion. Worthless religion. I was I was in uh, D.C. Like yesterday. We went to some museum. It was celebrating Lunar New Year. And we were in Chinatown, and that little area. You have like all these different religions on soapboxes, and they're preaching their message. So you had one little group on the corner. They're preaching the gospel, you know. And then you had a little. You walk down the street, and they. You had the Jehovah Witnesses, and they're all dressed nicely, and they're passing out their poison. And then you have the in the corner the black Hebrew Israelites, and they're up there, and they got the you know, they got their theology, and the you got the twelve tribes, and the Judah equals you know Hispanics, or and, and uh, Simeon or Joseph equals this. And, and as I was walking by, and he's he's going, he's oh all these mega churches. These mega churches, they don't do anything. They just, anything for the poor. They don't do anything for the needy. And a homeless man on the street, he's like, that's right. That's right. And of course, that's, you know, a mixed bag of kind of issues there. But James says, you know, what is your heart for those who are in need? What is your heart? What kind, of, what kind of compassion do you show to those who are suffering? I mean, yes, uh, homeless people have a lot, a, a lot of responsibility for themselves, but at least we can pray for them as we walk by, right? At least we can share Christ. You see, a wholehearted Christian is practically helpful, and he or she is internally holy. That we are to Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. In verse 27, we are to keep oneself unstained by the world. We get our hands dirty and we cleanse our hearts. The wholehearted Christian is practically helpful and he or she is internally pure. Pure and undefiled religion keeps one oneself unstained by the world. That doesn't mean we escape from the world. Jesus says we are to live in the world, but not to be of the world. There's nothing worldly or sinful about going to a, a fast food restaurant or buying clothes in a shopping mall. What we're to keep away from is the ungodly worldview and lifestyle of the people in the shopping mall. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we can buy meat from a temple of idols, but we can't worship the idols of the temple. So we live in the world, but we don't share the same values and moral code of the world. We talk to unbelievers, we're friends with unbelievers, but there are some conversations and speech we cannot indulge in. There are some jokes we cannot laugh at. 
there's going to be those uncomfortable moments when those times happen. We can agree about baseball. We can agree about the love we have for our kids. But we cannot join in the sinful activity of our neighbors. We can share our lives with our unbelieving neighbors, but we can't share in their worldviews. Yes, we love our, our unbelieving friend and family members, but there should be something fundamentally different about their lives and ours. Chuck Swindoll, he gives a, a colorful il illustration of kind of what we've been talking about this morning. Let's pretend I'm the CEO of a, a growing company and you work for me as my executive assistant. And I'm, in order to expand the operation overseas, I, I move there with my, I move overseas with my family and I, and I leave you in charge. And as the months go by, uh, uh, periodically, every week, uh, throughout the week, I send you, I write to you these long emails, and I, and I give you direction, I give you instruction. And, and after a year, I come back, I drive, I drive down to the office, and when I arrive there, I'm stunned. Because the grass and the weeds have grown up high, a, a few of the windows of the buildings are broken, I walk in the reception room and the secretary is doing her nails, she's chewing gum, she's listening to her favorite music, all the waste paper baskets, they're overflowing with trash, the, the carpet hasn't been vacuumed in, in weeks, nobody seems concerned that the owner has returned, and I ask about your whereabouts, and someone in the crowded lounge points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there! When I find you, you're playing chess with the sales manager. I ask you to step into my office that has been turned into a, a PlayStation video game room, and I ask you, what in the world is going on? Look at this place. What happened to all my emails? You read them, right? And you respond with emails? Oh, sure. I got every one. As a matter of fact, we have email study every Friday night since you left. We get into small groups and we talk about all the things you wrote. Some of them are really interesting. A few of us have actually memorized word for word some of your sentences and paragraphs. One of us have memorized one of your entire emails. And I say, okay, okay, you got my emails. You studied them. You meditated on them. You discussed them. You even memorized them. But what did you do about them? You say, do? Oh, uh, we didn't do anything about it. An absurd story, an absurd story that happens nowhere else in the world except in the church. Not even in liberal churches. Only in Bible teaching conservative churches does this story apply. No one would risk their careers by failing to do what the boss has told them. But in church, people play around with heaven and hell like toys. Like children's toys. Like plastic dinosaurs and soldiers. For some reason, we don't have any problem taking our chances with eternity. So my prayer for us all is that because of this word, we would see ourselves in the mirror and leave remembering to receive the implanted word.